0: This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds.
1: Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger.
0: What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Catherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years. And hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there. Hope you're doing well in your corner of the world. Boy, did we have a blowout here in New England yesterday with Tropical Storm Isaias. The entire state of Connecticut was in a tornado watch for nearly the whole day. Wind gusts of up to 60 miles per hour. Blew down many big and beautiful trees in Connecticut and Massachusetts and caused power outages for millions throughout the New England region. But the silver lining in all this was the blessed rain. We needed that rain so badly, and we received from a half inch to two inches in many regions of New England. Parts of Pennsylvania had more than eight inches of rain, and there was some localized flooding due to all that downpour. And now for something really strange, as in strange seeds from China. Last week, Americans were puzzled and surprised to find packets of seeds showing up in their mailboxes from China. This naturally grabbed the attention of federal officials at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Plant entomologists with the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services Department within the Department of Agriculture reported that after testing, the seeds were identified as annuals like mint, rosemary, sage, and lavender. While officials believe the seed deliveries are not an act of agro-terrorism by a diabolical superpower, they are advising Americans not to touch the seeds, to leave the packages unopened, and to seal them in a Ziploc bag and contact local authorities while further investigations continue and any possibility of plant disease transmission has been ruled out. The seed packets have also churned up in Canada, Europe, and Australia. It may be part of what's called a brushing scam when a company sends unsolicited items to consumers in order to boost their sales ratings. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? I'll bet you did. It's the unmistakable call of the loon. The loon's call is beautiful yet haunting. When I hear loons calling to each other on a lake, especially at night, I can feel a chill go up my spine. Their call is one of the most primal sounds of the wild. The common loon is a large water bird with black and white feathering, bright red eyes, and a long pointy black bill that inhabits forested lakes in the northern U.S. and Canada. The loon is closely related to the penguin and the albatross. Most birds have hollow bones, but not the loon. The loon has solid bones, and that makes them less buoyant and better at diving. This is why they tend to ride so low in the water when they're floating. When diving, loons blow air out of their lungs and flatten their feathers to expel the air within their plumage, allowing them to descend quickly. A loon can dive 200 feet underwater to catch fish and is often referred to as a torpedo with feathers. They have a unique internal blood gas exchange system that allows them to dive deeply and ascend quickly without suffering disorientation or what human divers would call decompression sickness. Loons prefer to eat fish, mostly perch, trout, smelt, and minnows, but they will also eat frogs, crayfish, salamanders, and leeches. Some avian scientists believe their red eyes help them to see underwater, filtering out blue and green light. Other researchers are now claiming the red eyes may have more to do with mating, and that the red eyes may be part of what attracts breeding birds to each other, especially since a loon's eyes return to their normal gray color once mating season is over. At the end of summer, the loon migrates to the ocean, where it spends the winter eating fish and crustaceans along the New England and New Jersey coastline. Loons follow an ancient migratory pathway when trying to make their way to lakes in the spring and back to the ocean come the end of summer. The roots of these pathways are in a loon's DNA and were pioneered by their loon ancestors. The pathways were carefully chosen to place the migrating loon as closely as possible to accessible waterways like lakes, ponds, and reservoirs for landing safely at nightfall and for resting up for the next day's journey. A loon's legs are set far back on its body and are essentially useless on land. A loon cannot stand up on its legs and walk, but must drag its body across dirt, rocks, and branches in order to find water again if it should accidentally land in the wrong place. There are reports of loons that have dragged their bodies through miles of forest to find another body of water. Loons have very small wings, especially when compared to other water birds like the great blue heron or even the cormorant. This is why loons cannot glide or soar in the air to reserve energy. They must constantly flap their wings to stay airborne. Loons need a long runway of water to take off into the air. Ideally, loons need at least a quarter mile in order to achieve liftoff. This would be roughly 400 yards. They literally run across the surface of the water with their webbed feet to gain momentum, flapping their wings until they become airborne. Remarkably, the loon has a salt gland located at the base of its top beak between the eyes. This gland can shut on and off at will, allowing the bird to safely drink salt water in the ocean without suffering any ill effect. A loon can live up to 25 years of age, and sometimes even 30. There is a loon in Michigan who just turned 33. The loon is listed as a threatened species in New Hampshire and as a species of special concern in Massachusetts. Today is a special episode dedicated entirely to loons. Good news for loons in Massachusetts. For the first time in over 100 years, a loon chick has hatched in the southeastern part of the state. The chick hatched this past spring at a nest in Fall River, Massachusetts, according to the Wildlife and Biodiversity Research Institute in Portland, Maine, which has had a hand in restoring loons to the state of Massachusetts. Unfortunately, shoreline development and hunting drove loons from southeastern Massachusetts in the late 19th century and early 20th century. As part of a multi-state initiative to help the loon, which is considered a species of special concern in the state, 24 loon chicks were relocated from New York and Maine to the Assawompset Pond Complex in Lakeville in 2015. The hope was that these chicks would develop into breeding adults and return to the area to develop new populations. The exciting news came this spring when bird biologists identified the leg band on a bird as that of one of the original 24 relocated chicks. That male loon chick is now an adult and has established a nest with a female, producing a healthy chick. Breeding restoration plans also include relocating chicks to lakes in the Berkshires, according to state officials. Congratulations to the happy couple and good luck little loon chick. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Now let's talk a moment about loons and lead poisoning. Over the years, I have received quite a number of injured loons at my rescue center. Many of them are admitted with head trauma and bodily injuries from being struck by jet skis and high-powered motorboats. Some of them come in hopelessly entangled in monofilament fishing line, resulting in deep lacerations and nerve damage. And some of them arrive with fishing hooks embedded deep inside their throats and stomachs, causing hemorrhaging and infection. But by far the most disturbing problem I see in loons is lead poisoning. For decades, sinkers and jigs have been made of lead. While popular with fishermen, lead unfortunately is a neurotoxin and is deadly, especially for loons. But just how do loons end up ingesting lead sinkers and jigs? A loon regularly digs in the sand at the bottom of a lake with its beak, looking for small stones, which it swallows in order to help digest its food. Unfortunately, they can inadvertently swallow lead sinkers. In addition, fish that break the line and get away from fishermen are often swallowed up later by loons, hook, line, and sinker. Then there are loons who will follow lures and gobble up the fish as it lands on the hook. Instead of reeling in the loon and getting help, fishermen sometimes cut the line, sealing the fate of the bird. As the loon's gizzard grinds down its food, the lead is also broken down and travels quickly through the bloodstream toward the brain. The neurotoxic effects of lead include blindness, lethargy, confusion, paralysis, tremors, seizures, convulsions, and almost inevitably, death. A loon that ingests even a tiny lead sinker or jig can suffer neurological impairment in death, according to Harry Vogel, the executive director and a senior biologist at the Loon Preservation Committee. Reversing the effects of lead poisoning is difficult, if not impossible, and usually results in a fatality. Lead poisoning is the leading cause of loon mortality in New England. Research in the Journal of Wildlife Management showed the results of necropsies performed on 253 loons that died between 1989 and 2012. Close to 50% of the loons in the study died from lead poisoning. The study showed lead poisoning to be the single biggest contributing factor in the decrease in the number of loons in New Hampshire. There are only 300 breeding pairs of loons left in New Hampshire. But there is new hope for loons. For many years, the Loon Preservation Committee worked tirelessly to pass legislation to ban the use and sale of lead sinkers and jigs of one ounce or less. This is the size most commonly used on lakes. That legislation was passed and turned into law in 2016. Me to the next part of the show, the interview segment. My guest today is a conservation attorney who played an instrumental role in getting this life saving legislation passed. His latest project has been putting together the new Lead Tackle Buyback Program, which he will be explaining to us in just a moment. But I wanted to say a few words about this person who has done so much to protect loons, and who, in my opinion, is one of the staunchest defenders of wildlife and the environment in New England. He is a Grantham, New Hampshire attorney with a public service-focused practice working in areas including administrative, the environment, land use, and municipal law. In addition to offering traditional legal services, his practice includes community relations with the goal of making all levels of government more accessible and responsive to constituents. In 2014, he was one of the recipients of the New Hampshire Union Leader Newspaper's 40 Under 40 Award which recognizes some of the state's brightest young achievers who have a record of professional and volunteer accomplishments in New Hampshire. Prior to entering legal practice, my guest served as a nonpartisan aide to U.S. Senator John Sununu from 1999 until 2009. In that role, he handled a diverse portfolio of work that included environmental, health care, and federal grant support projects. In addition to interceding on behalf of individuals to resolve problems with agencies he helps secure millions of dollars in funding for community projects. In private practice, he has led efforts in support of major environmental legislation protecting New Hampshire wildlife from toxic lead fishing tackle, which we'll be discussing today, and safeguarding the state's natural resources against oil spills by improving inland spill preparedness measures. For the past two years, he has represented his town as legal counsel, and was project manager for the town's acquisition of a 400-acre parcel to permanently protect high-value wildlife habitat. Sheridan Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks, Catherine. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So today we're going to talk about loons and lead poisoning. Can you tell our listeners what your lead tackle buyback program is all about and how it helps loons?
2: We recently started, uh, this is our third year of of running a loon preservation committee, running a lead tackle buyback program in New Hampshire. It's called Loon Safe and does have its own website, loonsafe.org and it was started to to build upon the successes of our legislative efforts in the state lead fishing tackles the the number one killer of of adult loons specifically lead sinkers and and lead jigs which are a hook with a weight molded right onto it that weigh one ounce or less are the the largest known cause of of loon mortality from from lead poisoning these can be either picked up off the bottom as as loons are um, getting grit off the bottom of a a water body or they can be in the case of jigs picked up with a um, fish that has broken away and has that tackle in it so the the loon ingests it with its its regular prey and many many years of of legislative efforts were spent to uh, get the small lead sinkers banned in new hampshire But there was still a large problem with the lead jigs that weren't covered by existing law. And so in 2013, we were finally successful in getting an adequate protective standard in place for loons that bans the freshwater use and the sale in New Hampshire of lead tackle, lead sinkers or jigs that weigh one ounce or less. And this lead tackle buyback program now is targeted at buying up lead tackle in that size range. It's been uh, very successful. There's been a, a great response to it. We're working primarily with local tackle shops, which happen to be social hubs for anglers and, and uh, sportsmen and women, as well as a place where they they buy their stuff and rely on expertise of the, uh, the shop owners. So we've really enjoyed uh, making those connections, having that that interface with the folks that are out fishing that that really in in large part want to want to do the right thing they want to be using safe tackle.
1: Can you tell our listening audience a little bit more about the legislation that was passed in New Hampshire regarding lead sinkers? There was some controversy surrounding it, but all in all it seems like it was a team effort and the legislation was passed.
2: When you look back at the all the things that lead has been phased out of from paint to fuel the great efforts that people take on the health and safety front in in the residential context to make sure that children and and adults aren't aren't exposed to lead, it's really shocking that we still have this this industry that makes a large amount of stuff out of lead, and much of it uh, handled by children and and definitely by adults. The controversy, if there was controversy, I guess I'd, I'd say the opposition came from a few different places number 1 was was industry sponsored loons are the problem of of loon poisonings is is somewhat uh limited to northern northern places um we're in new hampshire at the almost the southernmost part of the loon's range so this is it's not a problem that's really monitored in uh in the south where a lot of of bass fishing happens where a lot of tournament fishing happens and so there's a there's an industry focus on places other than the northeast and a lot of manufacturers that want to keep cranking out that cheaply made product using a raw material that doesn't cost them a lot and that they can have a a decent markup on so there was i think the industry interest in in protecting lead tackle. Another argument that came up was the slippery slope argument of we we were going to, to regulate this and then we'd want to come for the next thing and the next thing. And that is, is and never has been our goal. This is all science focused on 40 years of data collected by Loon Preservation Committee of exactly what kills loons when when dead loons are recovered they're taken for a, a necropsy the cause of death is is determined and in most cases where there's lead poisoning the the object kills so quickly that there's still a um, there's still a good amount of the object left in the loon it gets ground up as part of their digestive process and um, you can see an actual plume of lead that leaves it and goes into the bloodstream on an x-ray so there was the opposition from the industry folks there was the opposition from folks who didn't believe this was actually a significant problem there was opposition from folks who looked at this on strictly a cost basis of well, if you get rid of this fishing's going to be more expensive and i would say in all those all those areas either knowingly or unknowingly people were were presenting misinformation one of them being that there was a lack of affordable alternatives and every day we continue to see more and more alternatives coming onto the market uh lead alternatives such as tin uh, tin bismuth steel tungsten is is one of the more expensive ones but also one of the more durable ones and and one of the ones that performance wise um, really appeals to a lot of the the competitive anglers out there the cost is coming down on those things as as more people make them and, and find different ways to to do it. So there there is a selection out there of, of things that are available. People who minimize the issue, they looked at the number of loons that were killed in New Hampshire each year, and they say, oh, it's only five loons a year. That's not a big deal. When in fact, from a population standpoint, if you talk to the loon biologists, I am not one, but I've heard it enough times to retell the, the uh, science. They're very long lived birds with a a low reproductive rate. An adult loon doesn't breed until it's basically six years of age. So, and then when they do, they have on average half a chick per pair per year uh, when you take into account survival. I know that they can't produce half a chick, but you know, that's the average once you you take away the ones that that don't survive. So, to have a loss of a, a breeding adult, even a single breeding adult has a ripple effect on the whole population and um, losing five of them. And in some years, you know, obviously more fives, the average is really hard to swallow for a bird that is a threatened species in New Hampshire has years of volunteer efforts thrown behind its preservation has not really been a a self-sustaining species in its in its recovery, but has been helped along by a lot of a lot of individual contributions, whether it's financial or time or just monitoring and reporting what, what people are seeing. There have been a lot of individuals that have paved the way to, uh, to bringing loons back in, in the state of New Hampshire. So it, it rung a little hollow with us and with a lot of legislators that cost would be raised as an issue when it is so minimal. You're talking about a couple more bucks for, for your tackle, for your, your sinkers or jigs versus having all these other people out there putting in time and money and effort and and basically subsidizing the use of of a toxic substance you know they were the ones sustaining the population while this lead tackle is still available on the market and uh, and killing off loons so we we did raise that as as an argument and it took many years of of efforts until we finally got to a a tipping point in 2013 where we were able to get the adequate standard, previously there was a length uh, standard for things that they had to be, I believe it was an inch and a half or an inch and a quarter in length for the jigs, and that just was not working. We were, LPC was still recovering a lot of dead loons that had tackle that wasn't wasn't prohibited by that, that earlier standard. So the way to go was a weight standard of, of one ounce or less, whether it's a sinker or a jig. We're finally there, where the we've got the toughest standard in in the nation now, but by virtue of having that um, prohibition on freshwater use and also on the sale of this tackle in New Hampshire. So we're trying to, at this point, educate distributors and others uh, about the law, which we had to have a, agree to a three year phase in as a compromise because people still wanted to be able to uh, get rid of their. Their inventory that was a little bit painful to swallow because of it being a toxic substance and, and wanting to see it immediately eliminated, but it certainly compromises part of the legislative and policy process. So we we agreed to that because it was better than nothing, and um, we're now at a point where this this law is in effect. We have that as the backstop for our lead tackle buyback program, and it's um, it's something that makes the lead tackle buyback program successful in ways that it couldn't be without legislation a lot of folks said to us in the legislative debates well why don't you just buy up all the lead tackle which for us we explained would be sort of like bailing the water out of a boat without fixing the hole in the bottom if if folks could just come and sell more lead tackle into the state it'd be very hard for us to convince private donors to uh, to put up money to to buy this lead tackle so manufacturers could just come in and sell more and so we needed a, a protective standard behind this, uh, this buyback program. And, and as LPC's executive director says, you know, he was, was eager to speak to people in, in terms that they, uh, they're often most receptive to, which is <laughs> cold, hard cash. You know, we were, we were eager to put that up at a time when it would be effective. And, and so now that a protective standard is in place and people need to, stop using this lead tackle, we've been more than happy to help them make the switch and uh, and put our money where our mouth is. I didn't mention before what the incentive is. What what folks can do is they can come into these participating tackle shops. They can uh, bring in one ounce or more of band lead tackle. And so it might be four quarter ounce sinkers. It might be a couple half ounce sinkers. So any any combination of, of band tackle that leads up to at least one ounce and they get a $10 voucher that they can use at that participating shop for any other gear they might want to buy. If they want to get non-lead tackle or, or fishing line or whatever, that's, that's up to the shop. But we, we reimburse the shops. It's covered by Loom Preservation Committee and some really generous private donors who, who believe in the program. And um, we've been really happy to have that relationship. We're doing a lot more with digital advertising over the last couple of years. And I think at this point, we've, we've probably taken in close to 10,000 pieces of, of tackle. And it probably weighs around 60 or so pounds. And this is all, with very few exceptions, this is all tackle that's in the size range that would have killed loons.
1: Now, I do understand there are, you know, just regarding the culture of fishermen, there are some fishermen who actually make their own lead sinkers. What is that process? Do they actually melt down lead and pour them into molds?
2: They do and they can also now buy ingots of uh tin bismuth, which I guess has a a similar melting point. And one of our participating shops up in Meredith, New Hampshire actually makes tin bismuth sinkers and, and uh jigs for folks. You know, obviously that would still be illegal for freshwater use if somebody was, was making it for private use, they're not they're not selling it. So how much of a a problem that is, I don't know. I think most people probably want to shy away from handling lead. But one thing we have heard is that some of the smaller lead that people have, that rather than turning it in, they've been melting it into larger stuff. Which I mean, lead is lead, but it the larger stuff is not our concern. We've we've been focused on on just what is a, uh, a hazard to loons, and that's one ounce or less.
1: Can you tell me, who were the principal players in getting this lead buyback program started?
2: Oh, boy. Well, the principal players have, have always, I mean, Loon Preservation Committee has been the, the big one that has pushed this for many, many years, since the, since the 90s at least, getting the, the earliest legislation in the country related to lead sinkers, and then this, this new proposal which I was involved with uh, as the legislative coordinator in 2013, and and it's really a source of pride for for Loon Preservation Committee. Uh, New Hampshire Audubon had been involved in those earlier efforts. New Hampshire Lakes Association was a, a partner to us in the in the 2013 efforts. A lot of legislative champions throughout the years, which is a very important factor. You can't simply take a bill of any sort and expect it to succeed just because you find a few folks that will put their their names on it. You need co-sponsors, yes, as a, a formal requirement, but what you really want is legislative champions in both houses of the legislature, House and Senate, and you, you want people that really strongly believe in your bill and are gonna get behind it and. Um, put some real political capital down. We had a lot of those folks over the years. Um, Carl Johnson, who has since passed from the Lakes region, was a senator who was a champion for many years of, of getting rid of, of lead tackle. Jeb Bradley, who is currently a state senator from, from the Lakes region, from Wolfboro. Tremendous, tremendous in his efforts from way back when he was on the, the House side to current day when he helped us in the, the Senate fight. Jeannie Forrester, who's no longer a, a senator but was from uh, from Meredith that was very helpful in in 2013 and and uh, led that legislation and you know there's always a danger that you'll you'll forget people when you're you're picking them out. Um, Bob O'dell was another one a senator from from my part of the state right over in New London and uh, just to, you know they've really. They really worked tirelessly at it. A lot of good folks on on the house side, and uh, it just it it has many many steps, any of which are spots where it can be derailed. And you really you have to go through a long, you have to run run quite the gauntlet to get a, a bill passed. And then for a bill that has strong opposition, whether it's from uh, certain fishing groups or whatever that creates another challenge because the the sporting lobby does have really strong influence in not only New Hampshire's legislature but in congress as well so it it would not have happened if not for a lot of people that had been at it for a long time and were all together in 2013 pulling on the same end of the rope and um it's it's really great, and it was signed by uh, Governor Maggie Hassan, who is now our our state senator, or I should say, our U.S. Senator from New Hampshire. Our other U.S. Senator, uh, Jean Shaheen, had also been supportive of those earlier efforts during her time in the in the state senate and then as governor. So there's been a lot of focus from good legislators. You need a good team. It doesn't just happen by by putting a piece of paper in. So we're thrilled to to have that LPC certainly worked at it for many, many years and continues to educate on it. We, we've done decades of of education on the issue. And what was clear by the time of the 2013 legislation was education alone would not get it done. There needed to be a protective law in place. And we're thrilled that we could lead on the policy piece of this. Uh, LPC is thrilled that it could lead on the buyback piece of this. We're now starting to see other other states uh, emulate the program we have. We're interested to see how how successful those other places can be if they don't have a ban on the sale of this tackle like we do. It, it may be a little bit of a, a hindrance for that sort of, of buyback model that we have, but we're thrilled that people are, are um, copying this. And recently, as part of putting together a, and the federal uh, government was putting together a oil spill settlement for a spill that happened in Massachusetts. And we were a big part of, of weighing in on that draft restoration plan and got the Fish and Wildlife Service and the other trustees, through that advocacy, to recognize that lead tackle exposure reduction is really a key piece of of any sort of of loon restoration effort. So they did add in a component that will make funding available to northeastern states for for those programs. So we hope that will that will also result in a little more expansion of of the sort of activity we're doing here in New Hampshire.
1: So tell me what role you play specifically in the lead buyback program. What 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 is it about loons that caught your interest? Well, it's
2: they're they're amazing birds, first of all. I'm a pretty avid bird watcher and have always have always enjoyed all water birds, but loons are just they're a fascinating bird both because of how striking they are in appearance, their call which is really a a direct connection to the wild when you hear it and seeing them on the coast in the winter where i do a lot of birding and seeing how much these birds endure how much they're built to take and getting pounded by the surf and spending spending time in the worst of weather where you know i might pop out of my car with a friend and we can last 10 or 15 minutes with the wind blowing in our faces watching birds and then have to go somewhere warm whereas they're out there just in it no relief and they can survive that stuff and it's the man-made hazards that are the most detrimental to the loons. It's the, uh, it's the boat strikes, it's the monofilament, you know, the fishing line, they get the tackled up or tangled up in, and it's, and it's the lead tackle and the lead tackles, the, the most easily preventable, because there are, are such other good options, you know, to see something that's that, that amazing and that resilient suffering, just a terrible. I mean, as a wildlife rehabber, you know, uh, a lead poisoning death is is not a good way for anything to go. They they suffer a lot, and it's it's you know from the humane side of things, it's very sad to see see one of those birds in its its debilitated state for no good reason, for no good reason. And so, I really, I I met met the folks uh, from Loon Preservation Committee through through other contacts and in the conservation world and and offered my assistance back in in 2013 and ended up becoming the uh the legislative coordinator for their their successful effort really just had a lot of fun doing it because the um the people that are are working as biologists the people that are are working as as volunteers both for Loon Conservation and for for most if if not all conservation efforts they're all just incredibly uh, inspiring. It's really fun to be part of a team like that. So um, it, it allows me to have a lot of mission connectedness in my legal practice to uh, to take on projects like that, which is certainly very nice. Once we got through the legislation, I was a big uh, big proponent for keeping our, our foot on the gas pedal and making good on our promises to do everything we could. There was the suspicion that we would get legislation passed and then walk away from this of, you know, okay, we, we did our thing and, and we're not looking for, for Pyrrhic victories, we wanna save loons. And so the next step was how do we build upon this? And, and that was the point at which I, I proposed a lead tackle buyback. And that we design it with this this sort of voucher format that um, would be a benefit to the small shops. you know it would be a value exchange rather than us just going into someone and asking them, "Hey, will you partner with us because we want you to do all the work?" It's a true partnership where we bring something to the shops that's that's of value to them. A lot of them are in competition with the larger chains, the Amazons, the people selling direct online, and so for them it's it's a way to bring Additional business in the door, it's a way to get recognition for their responsible business practices, and it it introduces us in a a collaborative way versus an adversarial way to anglers who you know probably ninety nine percent want to fish lead free anyway, and the ones that that do end up using lead are probably doing so inadvertently because of how long this stuff has been on the market we worry about the, the grandpa's tackle box. Somebody, somebody goes and like this year with a pandemic where they need ways to get out and and have a recreational activity, they grab grandpa's old tackle box and they head out to the lake and they don't realize that it may be full of lead because they're assuming that lead hasn't been on the market forever when, when in fact, it's a pretty recent development that we've gotten it out of some of these pieces of tackle. So I don't know if that answered your question, <laughs> but it's I, I could gush about the program forever because it's it's just a really great bunch of people that are are working on these issues and we are making progress and that's always another great motivator. We we it's it's really too early to have a, a good, you know, kind of scientific set of data, but the early returns are that we've we're seeing a, a downtick in uh, lead mortality this year we only have one lead bird so far, and if you told us that was going to be the case at the beginning of the season i don 't think anybody would have believed it because this year has seen increased fishing pressure with a lot of a lot of shops reporting to us that they were seeing more business than usual, people coming in and getting fishing licenses buying tackle. And uh, we were fortunate to be in our third year of this program because we had the shops already supplied with vouchers and up to speed on how the program works. And so I think we we hopefully made a good number of, of trade ins in the early part of this fishing season. But to only have one loon poisoning from lead this year when we had so many more people out. Fishing during the the pandemic, looking for ways to social distance and and still um, have some recreation. I think that's a that's a huge success. It's probably the most powerful metric we have right now. I mean, we we know we've reached a lot of people through advertising and through trade ins, and but at the end of the day, the the thing we're trying to do is is see less dead loons from from lead fishing tackle, and we've we've certainly done that.
1: So, could you for our listeners just kind of walk us through step by step? how the lead tackle buyback program works. I'm sure we have fishermen listening to this show. You you go to your tackle box and gather up all your lead and then what happens?
2: Yeah, so if you and even if you're a non-angler listening to this show and you know somebody who is, one of the biggest assets we have out there. It's always always easier to reach people within your own community than than others. And so we we really Look for for conservationists out there uh, who listen to a a show like this to help us get the word out to folks who may not be listening to the show, who, you know, if they've got family members that are anglers, if they've got friends that are anglers, you know, just talk it up for us because that, that helps a lot. So how it works is if you check your tackle box and you have tackle in there that's older than I would say if. If it's just a sinker, if it's one of the small lead weights, no hook, and it's, I would say, pre-2000, there's a likelihood that it's lead. If it's pre-90s, it's almost certainly lead. And if you have any of the jigs, the weighted hooks that are a weight molded around the hook, that's most likely going to be lead if if it's anything earlier than, I don't know, probably 2010. Much of the changes in the the jigs have been as a result of of this legislation in New Hampshire. Companies kind of get ahead of the curve. Some of them have said, you know, we, we don't want to have different rules for this state, that state, whatever. So we'll, you know, we're going to make things we can sell everywhere or, or carry things we can sell everywhere in, in the case of the retailers. So other ways to check, some of them require damaging the tackle, which not everybody wants to do. If you have something that is painted, we always stress to people, paint does not protect loons from lead. It doesn't matter if it's covered. They have a, a grinding mechanism to their digestive system. So it takes that off real quick along with, with stomach acids, seawater, whatnot, doesn't offer any protection, even if it's a rubber coating. If it's one of these um, skirted jigs, if there's lead in there, the digestive mechanisms of the loon is are going to release it, and you'll, as I said before, you'll see on an X-ray a, a toxic plume of the lead actually leaving the object in the stomach and going into the loon's bloodstream. So it's not that they're mechanically killed by the the hook or or any of the other stuff. It is is strictly the lead going into the bloodstream that is is the issue. So for some of these things to test them, though, you need to scrape away that paint and you could use a lead test kit like they sell at Home Depot or any other hardware store. You put it on the thing and then you put it on a test paper and it'll turn a certain color if there's there's lead in it. If you can dent it with your fingernail, that's another indication that it's a, a softer metal like a lead. Or if you can write on a piece of paper with it, if you have something that doesn't have paint over it and you can you can make a line on a piece of paper with it, then you know you've you've got lead there. So those are those are how you would identify it, and then be careful handling lead. You, you know, don't go and have a snack afterwards. Ideally, handle it as little as possible. Put it in a plastic bag, and uh, if you can't get to a a tackle shop with it right away, put it somewhere where there's there's not a chance of it being inadvertently used. And then when you can get to a participating shop, you you bring it there. If you have uh, one ounce or more, you get a $10 voucher. We do occasionally run special programs. We just did for July, some uh, lead tackle independence days where we doubled that. And so those are all up on the website when we do do special events or contests. But at a minimum, you can get your your ten dollars for uh, one ounce or more of of lead tackle. So um, you know, we encourage people to to look for it, get it out of their um, their tackle boxes, and particularly those older tackle boxes that haven't been used in forever that somebody might just pick up and and inadvertently fish with lead tackle. Once we get to the end of the season and we reimburse shops, we we collect all this lead tackle. We uh, have a um (laughs) a biologist or an intern or some lucky person sit down and go through thousands of pieces of tackle and enter them in a spreadsheet so they can contribute to our understanding of which things are posing a hazard to loons and the data we've gathered from or or actually which which things are still out there these aren't coming back from loons so they're telling us you know which of the Things we know that are dangerous to loons, which ones are still out there in the greatest quantity. You know, we're getting back predominantly things that are in that band size range that would kill a loon. So we know there's still a fair amount of this stuff out there. We're trying to to identify the gaps for for how it might still be sold into the state. But uh, probably most of it is is for many, many years of the stuff being sold and still sitting around in people's tackle boxes. So bring in and out some more of it to the participating shop they give you a a voucher for $10 that can be used uh right there for whatever else you want and we keep it pretty simple we want something that's not a burden on the shops we want to have a, a have it be easy for them they're small business people they they have a lot to manage and so we haven't haven't placed a lot of restrictions on it other than you know one trade in per customer per season and then again we we do other other things that um, allow people additional opportunities. But what we've seen is the vast majority of people are not holding on to their lead and giving us one ounce at a time. Most people are walking into their shop, and they're dropping a huge bag of lead tackle and saying, I don't want any of it, and I don't even want the the voucher. So uh, while there are a few people that might bring in just an ounce and and get the voucher, that's fine. Those are the terms. Um, on average, we've seen people going well above and beyond and, and receiving the program really well and, and just getting rid of all their lead and obviously that's the that's the main goal for us. And, and for folks who don't don't care about the $10 voucher, we also have uh, been working with transfer stations. There's a, a wildlife rehabber over in uh, Henniker, New Hampshire, Maria Colby whos who's been very helpful to us in um, getting uh, collection boxes up and we're, we're building upon that effort this season, just in this month, actually trying to, to reach out to municipalities to get as many more of those up as possible. And those are all up on LoonSafe.org on an interactive map so people in New Hampshire can figure out where to dispose of their lead tackle properly. And then those get emptied out by us or by the, uh, the transfer station, and they go to a place where they'll be properly recycled, not thrown in a landfill somewhere.
1: Now, can you tell us how many participating bait and tackle shops there are?
2: Yeah, right now we have uh, nine total shops and we are still working to expand that. And I think probably would have this year, if not for COVID, making people's lives very uh, challenging. And so there's been a balance between people running their business and and also not doing things that encourage extra traffic so it's um we've we've tried to be very sensitive to that and and tell people you know if you can make a trip when you're doing other stuff or or wait until it's safe but early on you know march we obviously didn't want people flooding their their small tackle shops so uh, there's always been a a recognition there but we're at nine right now we expect to have more in the not too distant future it's well distributed around the state. So people in in most parts of the state have a place fairly close that they can get to to do these trade-ins. And we will probably in pretty short order have an online component to this too, where we'll work with some of the folks who are uh, manufacturing non-lead tackle to uh, to accept those vouchers towards their products.
1: Can you give us a website?
2: So the the website for the program is loonsafe.org. And that focuses primarily on the, the lead tackle buyback initiative. It, if people want to see more information on the lead threat to loons, the Loon Preservation Committee's website is, is excellent. It's actually been recently redone. And so it's very easy to navigate. A lot of great information on there at loon.org.
1: And can we talk a bit about out-of-state fishermen? I know Lake Winnipesaukee, the entire region, is considered a fisherman's paradise. Is there any way to reach those out-of-state fishermen with the uh, information about what lead does to loons?
2: It's difficult because we, we don't have all the resources in the world, and advertising is expensive. So last season, when we didn't have COVID, we had done radio ads designed to... Target commuters who were were coming up from uh, Massachusetts to to vacation in New Hampshire, and this year we pulled back on that because we thought it was a little inconsistent to be encouraging people to stay <laughs> stay on one hand stay close to home, stay safe, and then to have a a science based organization out there saying on the radio, you know, come to New Hampshire and visit, and and um, while you're at it, trade your lead tackle. So. We, again, wanting to be sensitive to the, the current climate, we, we didn't do that form of advertising. We have been doing a lot of digital advertising on the uh, the main television station here in, in New Hampshire, WMUR. So if you're on their news site, which is a, a kind of a primary place that people do go for weather information, we have a lot of digital ads that will display there and, and lead people to the site. We're advertising in print publications around the state that folks might see while they're up here vacationing on Lake Winnipesaukee. They might pick up one of the weeklies and uh, looking for something to do. Hopefully see that ad that says they can trade in their tackle. And you don't have to be a New Hampshire resident to trade in your tackle. That's not a requirement. We don't look at anyone's license. All we want is we ask for an email address, a a name, and a a zip code uh, just so we can can figure out a little bit of information on where we're having the most success reaching people, where we're hitting the target. We are out there in a variety of different places we're trying to do that in the most efficient affordable way possible. Those metrics from the first couple of years have been helpful in in reshaping our advertising. We also try to go to sportsmen and women at the places they're at, which is having information at boat launches, going to sporting expos when when we don't have a pandemic <laughs> we we went to the uh the large uh sporting expo that they have in Milford last year and that was a big success we were well received we had a table right at the entrance there so we could could reach people working with uh with New Hampshire fishing game is also another way that we we reach different audiences so as a result of those efforts we're hopefully reaching people in not only Massachusetts but other states that that come here and hopefully by people emulating our efforts, seeing the success of the, the buyback program, uh, that's another way that those those folks will be be reached.
1: So it's really, uh, when you think about it, it's obedience to the unenforceable. You really don't have fish and game officers out there investigating and looking into people's tackle boxes. It's really, the program's really relying on the cooperation and understanding of fishermen out there you know, even the tiniest, tiniest piece of lead can be fatal for a loon. It's such a potent neurotoxin. Even lead split shot, tiny piece of lead split shot can kill a loon.
2: Yeah, and I I wouldn't say it's unenforceable because certainly it is, it's as enforceable as anything else. But much of conservation relies on education and, and appealing to people's better angels than uh, Than the enforcement piece um usually when you're you're in the adversarial arena you're you're already losing, so uh we enjoy working collaboratively with the shops we've we've got a lot of sportsmen that we've heard from that are are pleased by the program. I think by and large, the anglers that are out there want to want to do the right thing and uh, we had a lot of support from both trout anglers bass anglers in the legislative fight unfortunately you you sometimes get vocal groups that are perceived as as speaking for everyone in their their opposition and uh, i think the results have have borne out that um you know most of most of the people out there want to work collaboratively with us and um when they do that we are we are effusive with our praise. We we want to make sure these people are, are recognized. And there's so many issues that we could be working together on that that is certainly uh, another thing we, we would like to see come about. There are plenty of, of other threats to, to lakes and to wildlife that, that we all agree on that having the collaboration uh, serves us all better than, than having to focus on that enforcement piece. But I think if you... If you don't have that enforcement piece and you don't, more importantly, have the, the sale ban, um, the, the risk analysis for people is too skewed for the buyback to work. I think people have to, you know, it, it gives them a choice of, do I want to risk getting a ticket for using this stuff or do I just want to trade it in and get some money for it? Which in most cases, if you're trading, actually, I think in all cases, if you're trading in an ounce of lead and getting a $10 certificate, you're getting more than you spent for the lead. You might be turning a profit in addition to avoiding a, a ticket. You know, then the, the sale, certainly the sale piece is the, the most important, the sale ban needing to stop that flow of, of new lead tackle into the marketplace.
1: Well, it must be so gratifying to think that a program you help design is actually becoming a model in other states. Do you have anything else on the back burner there that we don't know about?
2: Anything else on the back burner? Geez, I don't know. I mean, we're always we're always trying to innovate. So if we can find new ways to do things, whether it's working with Fish and Game to improve their testing capabilities, uh, we, we have uh, been talking about acquiring some lead test kits for Fish and Game and getting those in the hands of, of conservation officers. And so we're going uh, to try to... Test a lot of different things it's a it's a science based organization, so I really enjoy that that much of what we do is is um, results oriented and that that every year that we do this program we're uh, coming back at the end of the season we're analyzing what worked, what didn't work, we're finding that most of it worked <laughs> and so it's uh it's very encouraging to see that folks do want to make the switch if a little bit of money is the thing that that presents the tipping point. Uh, we're happy to to make that investment and, and we've had fortunately some some generous donors who are happy to make that investment knowing that we're doing it in a metrics based way.
1: So for our listeners who are not familiar with the Loon Preservation Committee, could you just explain what their position is and their role is with loons? Yeah. So the the Loon
2: Preservation Committee started way back in the in the 70s. And there's a lot of good history on their their website if people want to look at that. It was in response to the the fact that uh, loons were being pretty quickly lost from the the state. They just they were not doing well, and so this was the name says exactly what the mission is to to make sure we continue to have loons in the state. And they have really had tremendous success in in bringing back a large number of loons, but we are still well below the carrying capacity of the state. And I I really enjoy their senior biologist and executive director's sort of tagline that every lake should have loons. It just it makes the lake better, <laughs> and you see a lot of pride of ownership in the um, the lakefront property owners, the people around loon nesting sites, and so loon preservation committee has. Uh, they grew out of this this severe severe threat to loons in the uh, in the 70s to just strictly focus on. Education and supportive management of floating nesting rafts on some of the water bodies where you have uh, fluctuating water levels that can wash out nests that can create problems. So artificial nesting rafts for loons to help uh, reestablish them in certain places. Monitoring the the issues with you know lead in particular the toxins now looking more at some of the the contaminants the the pfoas and other things that we're hearing about in human settings which are also showing up in water bodies throughout the state and and can have impacts on wildlife so um by focusing intensely on this this one species the organization is both contributing to its its preservation, its success, as well as the health of water bodies in the state and other wildlife. Because loons, by virtue of, of eating fish and, and being higher up the food chain, tend to be an indicator species of, of other environmental things that are going on. So they are another canary in the coal mine. So LPC sees its role as you know, focusing on, on protecting loons, but also furthering those those wider benefits that come from from the science-based approach they have to things.
1: It seems like the turning point was that pivotal research paper that was published in the Journal of Wildlife Management showing that 49% of 250 necropsy loons were the victims of lead poisoning and that those fatalities occurred during peak fishing season in the middle of the summer. It seemed to generate a lot of action to protect the loons.
2: It certainly takes the wind out of critics' sails to have a peer-reviewed paper like that that has such such strong, irrefutable science behind it. And that's the benefit of having an organization that's, that's that focused on a, a single species. The benefits I- extend far beyond that single species, but there are few organizations that would have the depth of knowledge, the amount of data that, that LPC had to bring to it's policy arguments. And that's really another key factor to success that I I regret not mentioning earlier. It's you have to have credibility in these sort of things. And that paper was based on 40, 40 plus years worth of, of loon data. And that piece you mentioned about loon mortality coinciding with peak fishing activity in the state is a critical one because with regard to the jigs, which LPC Knew uh, the weighted hooks that LPC knew were poisoning loons based on the the necropsy results and and the objects they recovered. That's not stuff being picked up off the the bottom of of lake beds or stream beds like some of the the sinkers might be. That's that's stuff that's breaking off and and being uh, ingested along with the fish that's that's carrying it. And so being able to plot that timing was very important to to proving that case. And hopefully, winning over a few folks who, for many years, heard about the sinkers and heard, you know, loons ingest this stuff when they're picking up grit from the bottom. Until that research was was completed, until that paper was out and more widely publicized, may not have understood the mechanism by which loons were picking up these jigs. So I think that's that's also another helpful. Piece in getting people to make the switch. Any anytime you have something that is is so well grounded in facts and a, an extensive set of facts, and and one that's been, uh, you know, a paper that's been peer reviewed, you're going to get a good policy result. One would hope.
1: Well, I want to thank you today for joining us on Bird Hugger, and I appreciate thank you. everything you're doing to help the loons.
2: Yeah. And and thanks for all your work as a a rehabber. And and I know a lot of that has involved water birds as well. So I really appreciate all of that. and, And that's something I always enjoy discussing with you. Same here. Thanks, Catherine.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.